From New York to Manchester and from London to Moscow, Moscow of all places, Ireland was front page news a hundred years ago this week as the first ever doll met in Dublin and the youthful confidence of the TDs, the formalities taking place in the Irish language and the fact that there were more TDs imprisoned or on the run than there actually were in the mansion house on the day all made global headlines. But did the world take this renegade Irish parliament seriously and what message was it actually trying to convey to a global audience? Well, for more on that, it is time for another edition of Hidden Histories joined by Donald Fallon. Good afternoon, Donald. How are you? Good to be here. Good to be here. Um, The world's media were paying very close attention to Ireland 1919, but they didn't all take the same view of it. Yeah, and even 100 years, you know, even at the remove of a century, when you you look at the the front page newspapers the day after the doll met in Dublin, they're fascinating. I mean, one British newspaper described the doll as being both childish and illegal, which is quite a good review. And others in more far-off places were kind of baffled by the fact that it conducted its business in what one New York newspaper called an archaic language of tribal days. But whatever the world observed, whatever they thought about it, Mm. there's no denying the enormity of what happened in this country. And the meeting of the first stall on the 21st of January 1919, what it is really, it's the the realisation, it's the coming to, to, to reality of Sinn Féin's absolutely stunning electoral victory in December 1918. Mm. And that was described very, very beautifully. One contemporary observer said it was the triumph of the young over the old. In many ways it was. Some of the Sinn Féin TDs were young men in their 20s. And one journalist that was sent to the doll to see this all happen in the Mansion House, an American journalist, commented on the fact that they couldn't see a grey hair among these men. <laughs> so in a world that was changing rapidly, you know, post-World War I, the continent is being restructured, if you will, this gathering of Irish parliamentarians in Dublin was an incredibly bold thing. Uh, I'm struck that one of the American newspapers called Irish an archaic language of tribal days, which is probably what you get when you don't send a reporter who's got Gael Gebra <laughs> to make sense of everything they're hearing. Um, there was no surprise to this parliament, obviously, meeting in Dublin. This was the platform that Sinn Féin ran on, because uh, they it said they exactly. quite pointedly and would not go to London. Their election manifesto, you know, it said, it put it all out there. It said, look, the party uh, pledges to withdraw Irish representation from the British Parliament and deny the right and oppose the will of the British government or any other foreign government to legislate for Ireland. Other bits of the manifesto were, were pretty ambiguous. And I think this next bit basically says mm. we're willing to go to war. You know, it says the party is committed to making use of any and every means available to render impotence, the power of England, to hold Ireland in subjection by military force or otherwise. So the manifesto, you know, it made it very, very clear when we win these seats, and they'd already won a number of by-elections, but if we sweep the board in this general election, mm. we are not going to Westminster. Yeah, now, what was interesting as well is that, uh, and sometimes it's misportrayed, that this wasn't just a, a party event. They did invite all of the elected Irish MPs did, but of they, course no one else showed up Sinn Féin did very very well I mean there were 69 Sinn Féin parliamentarians representing 73 constituencies and that's that's kind of confusing now but back then you could run in multiple constituencies mm. now the problem for Sinn Féin is that a lot of their elected candidates are in prison Countess Markovic probably the most famous Eamon de Valera uh, as well others are hiding out in the United States you know from the, the long arm of the law so Sinn Féin invites all TDs uh, or all MPs mm. I should say members of the Westminster Parliament to attend the Mansion House in Dublin and no Nobody else turns up. So they read the roll call of all elected Irish parliamentarians and 29 people are described as illaher, present, mm. many more oslaher, not present. Others are either figlossig golov, jailed by the foreigner, or ardibert at golov, which means deported by the foreigner. And apparently there's this great moment of laughter in the mansion house when they read the name of Edward Carson, you know, the father <laughs> of Irish unionism. Yeah. Home rule is Rome rule, Ulster will fight and Ulster will be right. Mm. Edward Carson... Oslaher, you know, not present <laughs> in the room. Enough, yeah. <laughs> it must have gone missing in the post. Yeah. But there's 29 people down as in attendance. There's actually only 27 in the room. Oh. Harry Boland and Michael Collins are, are described as being illaher or present. 
at that time they're actually planning a jailbreak to get Eamon de Valera out of an English prison but to give them something of an alibi they're recorded as being there when they're not so there's a big air of sedition you could say to this thing from yeah. the beginning it Also let it be noted that these days when people complain about uh, TDs getting travel allowances that some of the MPs who didn't show up to the Mansion House were the ones who were elected from the University of Dublin Trinity College which is literally only down the street Absolutely. and they couldn't and make the jury. Carson also hailed from Harcourt Street so yeah. it was right in the middle of his family home uh, and the place he represents us uh, Those Trinity MPs by the way of course unionists so they wouldn't have had much interest in being there um, This event was obviously about uh, asserting a certain nationality but it was also aimed at a global audience predominantly in America but also in France It was and think about what's happening 1919 the peace conference in France there's this great hope that they can bring a permanent peace to the continent of Europe so with that in mind they read this very beautiful message and it's called the Message to the Free Nations of the World but they read it in English they read it in Irish and then they read it in French and there's something very very symbolic about that and it says that the permanent peace of Europe can never be secured by perpetuating military dominion for the profit of empire but only by establishing the control of government in every land upon the basis of the free will of a free people. Mm. So essentially what they're doing there Sinn Féin I think is they're saying if this was a war for the freedom of small nations you know if we're sitting around the table in France to establish a new Europe we believe that we have an entitlement to be there. They read a Declaration of Independence. I mean, just those very words, mm. Declaration of Independence. What does that bring to mind? Only Thomas Jefferson, Tom Paine, George Washington. You know, that's aimed very, very much mm. at Irish America. So nearly everything that's read before the first stall is read with a global audience in mind and to impress and in some ways the politically flirt with somebody else. Yeah, uh, often forgotten as well that there was a declaration of independence separate to the proclamation and sometimes one one completely overshadows the other. Um, Aside from all those documents though that you've mentioned there, there was also the democratic programme of the Dáil uh, agreed or announced on the day and still even by 2019 standards, it's very radical. Even at the remove of a century, when you read the democratic programme, it is extraordinary and the 1916 proclamation, I think the language of the proclamation is very flowery, very poetic, mm. august destinies and things like this. What does that mean in concrete reality? Yeah. If you look at this document that's read before it at all, I mean, it's even now, it shall be our duty to promote the development of the nation's resources, to increase the productivity of its soil, to exploit its mineral deposits, peat bogs and fisheries, its waterways and harbours in the interest and for the benefit of the Irish people. Mm. The nation's sovereignty extends not only to all men and women of the nation, but to all its material possessions, the nation's soil and all its resources, all the wealth and all the wealth-producing processes within the nation, and then very boldly insists that the right to private property must be subordinated to the public right and welfare. So that document is a deeply loaded economic, political and social document. Mm. It's not written by a member of the Dáil, it's written yeah, who, by... Who is responsible for it? Thomas Johnson, who is the secretary of the Irish Labour Party. and Labour, who, did, who didn't run? Who didn't run, exactly. The 1918 election, the Labour Party don't stand. They step aside and they allow Sinn Féin a clear run at it. So in the absence of Labour, it became something of a kind of referendum on Irish nationhood. And I think the reward for Labour not standing on that occasion mm. was that Johnson is allowed to write this document. But Sean T. O'Kelly from Sinn Féin, who later becomes the President of Ireland, I mean, he joked that he said, my job was to debolchivise this document. <laughs> he says when the original copy arrived on his desk, it just wasn't going to pass. And some of Johnson's more radical demands were taken out. So you think about the course of Irish history and, and the Labour Party in the 20th century. Yes. It's quite amazing to believe that the leader of the Labour Party would write something like this. 
the Republic will aim at the elimination of the class and society which lives upon the wealth produced by the workers of the nation but gives no useful service in return. <laughs> now, <laughs> unsurprisingly, yeah. Shanti O'Kelly red penned that one. That was not going in. This was a doll that included many small business owners in it. And here you had the leader of the Labour Party basically calling for the abolition of capitalism. Yeah. It was never going to pass. Uh, what's really striking now is that when you think, look back at that, that democratic programme, this was 1919. The, the constitution that we have now is 1937 and mm. that has the, the often cited inalienable right to private property mm. and how it, it you know is often sacrosanct above all others and yet less than 20 years beforehand they were saying no sometimes that has to come second to, to public Absolutely. good. Um, now a lot of the TDs didn't necessarily agree with it or take what was announced uh, pretty seriously but uh, the world was, was sitting up and paying attention. They were it? and I mean for, for some of the TDs in attendance I think they understood that Johnson's democratic programme wasn't something that they'd actually ever have to enforce. In other words you know let, them, let, let the left have that that's their moment. Mm. Uh, but I think the aim of that as well was that there was a global audience that were watching. And the proof of that is actually Morris Casey, a young historian of Irish-Soviet relations, he re- recently discovered that there's a Russian translated copy of the democratic programme in the Moscow archives, in the communist wow. archives. So I think that was pointing in that direction. That yeah. was aimed at a different global audience. Some of the TDs were very dismissive of it. Kevin O'Higgins, who later became a government minister in the Free State, he said that the democratic programme was largely poetry. And famously, he once described the Irish as the most conservative people who ever had a successful revolution, which actually may be true, which may may on some level be true. But other TDs, take someone like Countess Markovich, who's in prison at the time, it may have reflected her vision. But Sinn Féin in 1919 is a very broad church. You can be a conservative like Kevin O'Higgins, you can be a radical left-winger like Countess Markovich, and you can be anything in between between the two, really. Mm. Um, so was, with all of that kind of disagreement, was it ever really more than a talking shop or did it ever kind of trigger anything more, more salient? I mean, the fact that so many of its TDs at any one time were either in prison or on the run made it pretty impossible to function as a normal parliament. Unionists didn't go to it. Home rulers didn't go to it. Mm. So you had a one-party parliament. And I think the Labour Party, the biggest mistake, in, and there's been a few since, but the biggest mistake in the history of the Labour Party was not agreeing a pact with Sinn Féin and contesting this election because the Parliament would have looked like a more democratic institution, I think, if it had at least one other party in it. This was an exclusively Sinn Féin Parliament. It only met on 21 days between the first meeting and the truce. Mm. Only four of its meetings ever happened in public, the last one in May 1919. And by September 1919, it was criminalised and driven underground. So it was a very weird thing. This was an illegal parliament Mm. of men that were elected through the democratic British process and institution. And some of the ministers that they had were amazing. They had a minister for the Irish language, Shanti O'Kelly. Count Plunkett was the minister for fine... what What a job. The minister for fine art. That's a, that's a job. That says something that is a job right Irish there. nationalism. But you also had Republican courts, Republican police mm. across the country. So they did, in, on some level, manage to have an impact on the day-to-day lives of ordinary people yeah. by challenging the legitimacy of the, of, the, of the British state and courts. But on another level, they just couldn't function as a normal parliament. Uh, by the way, only 21 sitting days in four months. I think sometimes we think <laughs> that, that would be a very good rate of productivity for, for the present one. Um, of course, the other centenary, which we're marking tomorrow, uh, was not, you know, and this, this to a certain degree overshadowed what happened in the Mansion House, uh, was the effective beginning of the War of Independence. And much more divisive, of course. And Salahed Beg or Salahed Biog, as Tipperary people will always, will always correct you on, mm. Uh, that is where the first shots, it's arguable, it's arguable, but the yeah. first shots of the War of Independence, people say, are fired in Tipperary on the same day that the Dáil meets in Dublin. 
And it's important to say that 27 TDs in the Mansion House, not one of them had any clue that this was going to happen. I mean, there is the danger of reading history backwards and thinking these events were, were, were interlinked. The fellas in Tipperary, you know, led by Seamus Robinson, mm. they did what they did for a very particular reason. And he was very dismissive, actually, of what he termed Sinn Féin pacifism. Though he was later elected a TD himself. He believed that real change in this country could only come in the field of war. And Dan Breen, a stalwart of Fianna Fáil for decades, Dan Breen went one step further. He said, the only way of starting the war was to kill someone and we wanted to start a war. So while you had this political assembly happening in Dublin, conducting its business in the Irish language before the media of the world, the shots down in Tipperary would ultimately overshadow them. And I think the next day, no matter where you were in the world, if it was the New York Times or the Manchester Guardian, whatever newspaper you picked up, you were left in no doubt that politically and indeed militarily, Ireland was at war. And the rest, as they quite literally say, is indeed history. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there, uh, Donald. Uh, thank you, as ever. Donald Fallon, the author of the Come Here To Me blog and book, uh, Volume 2.